Today's show is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. How would things have gone for LaSalle if he'd had a good map maker to find the Mississippi? What if the Santa Fe expedition had been able to commission a detailed survey plot of all the wells and springs from Texas to New Mexico? If Leatherman Data Services had been around back then, Texas history may have turned out differently. Leatherman Data Services are experienced cartographers who share your passion for the past. They provide high-quality mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists, and cultural resource management firms, people who plumb the depths of history and need their maps to be accurate. If you think you may need their services, you can contact Leatherman Data Services by sending an email to leathermandataservices at gmail.com or find out more at their website, leathermandataservices.com. We thank Leatherman Data Services for sponsoring this episode and many others on the History Podcasters Network. You can find more shows like this one at historypodcasters.com. You know, if I turned you loose in like an open Texas field with no roads and I said, (laughs) I need you to move this cannon. (laughs) Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today we look back at the long and bloody history of one of the most fought over places in Texas, La Bahia de Goliad. But first, who's your favorite non-TV reporter, TV celebrity? From the University of Health Science Center in Houston, I'm Dr. Red Duke. I personally like Joe Bob Briggs and his Midnight Movie Reviews. And I like the Texas Rattlesnake, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold says so. We all know that most people would consider the most hallowed grounds of Texas history to be the Alamo in San Antonio, where Texas Patriots stood their ground against Santa Ana's army, or maybe the Field of San Jacinto near Houston, where Texan Patriots won their independence from Mexico. But in many ways, the town of Goliad and specifically the Presidio La Bahia, is as hallowed as those other great sites. Goliad has seen more battle and bloodshed than practically any other place in Texas, and the massacre of Fannin's doomed command in the spring of 1836 was as much a rally cry to Texas independence as the Alamo. Why is Goliad so important to the history of early Texas? Let's take a look back all the way to our very first episode, French in Texas. Now, if you remember, we talked about Texas in the 1600s as being part of the Spanish Empire, but not actively controlled or colonized by them in a serious way. Early conquistador expeditions explored Texas in the 1500s, but they decided that it was too far away from the rest of New Spain, and with no gold or easily obtained riches, there wasn't much reward to be had in having to drive out the Indians who were already living there. As a result of this neglect, in 1685, French explorer Robert Cavier de la Salle attempted to set up a colony in Matagorda Bay, which is on the Texas coast where he had landed by mistake when searching for the mouth of the Mississippi River. LaSalle's colony failed due to lack of supply and the hostility of local Native American tribes, but it did attract the notice of the Spanish, and it drew them north to expel the French intruders. They may not have had much use then for Texas, but the Spanish weren't about to let the French take it from them. That's my toy. I'm not playing with Frenchie. Hands off! Yeah, so by the time the Spanish found the colony four years later, after they went looking for it, LaSalle was dead, his fort was a ruin, and the colonists were long gone. While the Spanish were looking for LaSalle, they encountered various Native American tribes, including the Caddo people, who previous Spanish explorers had encountered in the 1500s, and whose word for friend, Teixa, became the Spanish word Tejas, which is where we get Texas. The Caddo were a pretty advanced farming people and were friendly and seemed interested in learning about Christianity. 
seeing an opportunity to both safeguard the empire and spread the Catholic faith. Uh, That's two things that colonial Spain loves to do. The Spanish decided to set up missions, which were religious outposts where priests could teach Christianity to the Indians, and that could also serve as military posts throughout Texas until forts, known as presidios, and towns could be built. In 1721, the Presidio Nuestra Señora Santa Maria de Loreto de la Bahía del Espíritu Santo was founded on or near the site of La Salle's Fort St. Louis, where the Guadalupe River empties into Matagorda Bay, and a year later, the mission Nuestra Señora de la Bahía del Espíritu Santo de Zuniga was founded nearby. The Presidio was most commonly called La Bahía, meaning the bay. In 1725, the Presidio and Fort were moved further up the Guadalupe River into what is now Victoria County. In 1747, the Spanish decided to move the Presidio and Mission again, this time to the San Antonio River, about halfway between the main Spanish town in Texas, San Antonio de Bajar, and the principal seaport at the time, Copana, on Matagorda Bay. Within a few decades, the wooden buildings of the Presidio La Bahia became massive stone walls, while the thriving mission featured one of the most beautiful chapels of any of the missions of Texas. La Bahia was a crossroads settlement, sitting on several of the few roads of Texas, and was the only fortress on the Gulf Coast for many years from the Rio Grande to Louisiana. Because of this, a prosperous town sprung up. By the late 1700s, the mission was the center of the first large cattle ranch in Texas, with 40,000 head of cattle roaming free, herded by Indian residents of the mission, who became the first vaqueros, or cowboys. So the first cowboys in Texas were Indians. The very first cattle drives in Texas occurred as vaqueros drove cattle from La Bahia to Spanish New Orleans. Life in La Bahia was peaceful through the turn of the 19th century. Spanish Governor Bernardo de Galvez employed troops from La Bahia in his action against the British in support of the American Revolution. And there was the occasional uh, battle or action against the Indian raids, but for the most part, it was a, just a sleepy military town. All of this changed after 1810, though, which was the year of the Mexican War of Independence, which began under Father Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, and this revolution soon engulfed Texas. In 1812, Mexican revolutionary Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara and American soldier of fortune Augustus McGee organized a small army of American adventurers, some Indians, and some Mexican revolutionaries to invade Texas in support of the revolution. This was the Gutierrez-McGee expedition. Among their number was a young Virginian named Josiah Taylor, who was Creed Taylor's father. They captured Nacogdoches, and then they set out to capture the next biggest town in Texas, La Bahia. The army actually easily captured the Presidio, and then they set it up as their new headquarters. Spanish Governor Manuel de Salcedo led an army to La Bahia and set up a siege which lasted for four months, and it's one of the longest sieges in American history. McGee died at La Bahia and was succeeded by Samuel Kemper, who led his men to finally force Salcedo to retreat to San Antonio de Bejar. It was soon also captured, and the Republic of the North was founded. This republic was short-lived, though, and it was defeated by Spanish forces in 1813, and La Bahia was recaptured by Spain, at least for the next couple of years. The fighting would not end for La Bahia, though. In 1817, survivors of the Republic of the North returned under Captain Henry Perry to unsuccessfully attempt to take the Presidio, as did forces under another filibuster, James Long, in 1821. Long was defeated after a bloody fight, but that year, Mexico finally achieved its independence from Spain, and La Bahia became a major part of the defense of the new Mexican Republic, especially in defense of the new Anglo colonies that began to settle in Texas. La Bahia remained strongly Tejano in character, and in 1829, its residents decided that it no longer made sense to call the town The Bay, since it hadn't been on a bay for over a century. The name of the town was changed to Goliad, 
which may have been an anagram for Hidalgo, the father of Mexico's independence, and that's what we'll call it from this point on. It was during this time that the old mission was secularized and closed, with most of the compound being disassembled and eventually falling into ruin. The Presidio at Goliad was critically important to the province of Texas, and as tensions between the Texians and the Mexican government exploded into war in October of 1835, Goliad would be one of the earliest targets for Texian revolutionaries. Late at night, on October 9, 1835, barely a week after the Battle of Gonzales, which is just 60 miles to the north, 125 men under George Collingsworth, Placido Benavides, and local merchant Phil Dimmitt attacked the undermanned garrison at Goliad. Collingsworth's men got tangled up in a mesquite thicket before the attack and encountered Ben Milam, former soldier, adventurer, entrepreneur, impresario, and all-around great Texas character. Milam had been a friend and partner of Dr. James Long back in the 1820s and who had just broken out of a Monterey jail for opposing Santa Ana. Milam joined the men on the spot and helped lead them out of the thicket and into the Presidio. After a sharp half an hour where Milam and the vanguard of the Texas force hacked through the gate with axes, the Texians defeated the Mexican garrison. After the battle, Milam is reported to have said, I assisted Texas to gain her independence. I have endured heat, cold, hunger, and thirst. I have borne losses and suffered persecutions. I have been a tenant of every prison between this and Mexico. But the events of this night have compensated me for all of my losses and my sufferings. One Mexican soldier was killed and three were wounded. Only one man on the Texas side, Sam McCulloch, a free slave, was wounded. He may have been the first man to shed blood in the Texas Revolution. Uh, Gonzalez, a guy, had been thrown from his horse and broke his nose, but I don't really count that. Some Mexicans escaped to warn other garrisons of the uprising, but most surrendered and were allowed to return to Mexico. The Texian forces captured $10,000 worth of arms and supplies, including heavy cannon, and some of these were sent to the main army as it marched to San Antonio de Bejar, along with Ben Milam and several other soldiers. Milam would die leading the Texian forces in the Battle of Bejar. The capture of Goliad cut off the main Mexican ports of Capano and Anahuac from the rest of the Mexican garrisons and from Mexico. Anahuac had been captured by William Travis and other Texas rebels. At the end of 1835, it saw Goliad as well as San Antonio and all of East Texas in the hands of the Texas forces. And many thought that the war was over. In December 1835, the citizens of Goliad drafted the first letter declaring that Texas should be independent from Mexico. Some Texians, including the provisional council that was governing the revolutionary state, thought that they should invade northern Mexico and seize Matamoros, the largest city in Coahuila. Somehow, in the confused political environment of revolutionary Texas, Colonel James Fannin, Colonel F.W. Johnson, and Dr. James Grant all managed to get appointed commanders of this expedition over the objections of Army Commander-in-Chief Sam Houston. Johnson and Grant convinced over 300 men from the Alamo garrison in San Antonio to join them and went to Goliad to launch their invasion. They were met by between 200 and 300 men under Fannin. They all managed to agree enough to head out to Refurio, another mission town 25 miles south of Goliad, to prepare. In January, General Houston arrived and managed to persuade Fannin and the larger portion of the force not to go ahead and to return to Goliad, where they renamed the Presidio Fort Defiance. Grant and Johnson wouldn't be dissuaded and went ahead with about 100 men to San Patricio, further south still, to gather horses for their expedition. By this time, though, Santa Ana's forces had reached the Rio Grande and part of his army under General Jose de Urrea and roll up the forces based out of San Patricio, Refurio, and Goliad while Santa Ana concentrated on recapturing San Antonio. Grant and most of his men were killed or captured, and Johnson escaped with just a handful of men. This left Colonel Fannin with over 400 men in Goliad, which was the largest Texan force anywhere in the state. 
although most of them were volunteers from outside of Texas. Fannin was a strange guy, something of an enigma in Texas history. He was a Georgian who had gone to and flunked out of West Point as a young man. He'd been a merchant in Georgia and came to Texas in 1834 to run a plantation and, it appears, to also trade and smuggle slaves. He was one of the few men to join the early volunteer forces who had any real, any real military experience, and Houston made him his inspector, which was effectively his second-in-command in the regular army. Now, Fannin was a capable administrator, and he was passionate about the cause of independence. He wasn't always a very effective commander. He often seemed aloof and strict with his troops, and was also pretty indecisive in a lot of things. In late February, messengers from the Alamo garrison under William Travis and Jim Bowie reached Goliad to report that Santa Ana has surrounded the mission fort and pleaded for reinforcements. On February 26th, Fannin set out with most of his troops towards San Antonio. They only made it a few miles before turning back because of their inability to cross the San Antonio River with their cannon and supplies. Despite repeated pleas by Alamo messenger James Bonham that Fannin try again, Fannin's force was still in Goliad on March 6th when the Alamo fell. Fannin did send some troops to help evacuate Refurio, where they were defeated and captured by Urias forces. On March 11th, Fannin was ordered by General Houston to evacuate Goliad, but again Fannin delayed and it wasn't until March 19th that they left, by which time Urias had arrived in Goliad. Taking the cannon and supplies with them and covered by an early morning's fog, Fannin's forces set off towards Gonzales. They only made it six miles to a prairie near Coleto Creek when they were caught by Urea's cavalry and were surrounded. Fannin circled his wagons, and there was a fierce battle throughout the day and into the night. Fannin refused to abandon his wounded, but his men were outnumbered, out of water, and nearly out of ammunition. So Fannin, who himself had been wounded in the fighting, sought terms from Urea. Fannin agreed to surrender on the terms that they would be treated well and cared for until the war was over. The next day, Fannin's men were marched back to the Presidio where the wounded were treated and all were fed. They were joined by the survivors from Refurio. Urea, meanwhile, wrote to Santa Ana of his victory, and he asked for further instructions. Unfortunately for the Texians, Santa Ana had ordered that no prisoners would be taken, and armed foreigners taking up arms against Mexico would be treated as pirates and executed. Urea tried to argue with Santa Ana that Fannin had surrendered honorably, and he pleaded for clemency. But in the end, Santa Ana ordered one of Urea's subordinates, Colonel José de Portilla, to execute all of the prisoners. Early on the morning of March 26th, Palm Sunday, Portilla's men marched the able-bodied Texans out of Goliad on the San Antonio Road, where they were lined up and shot. Those not killed right away were clubbed and bayoneted to death. Around an hour later, 39 wounded men were killed in the Presidio. Fannin himself was taken into the fort's courtyard and to be killed last. He asked that his personal belongings be sent to his family, that he be shot in the heart, and that he be given a Christian burial. After he was assured of all these things, he was shot in the face, his belongings taken by the soldiers who had killed him, and he and the other victims of the massacre were piled up and burned. Around 330 men were killed that day. 30 men were spared by a Mexican officer to serve as doctors and laborers, and another 30 men escaped death by feigning death or breaking through the cordon of Mexican soldiers. They were sheltered by brave residents of the town, and most of our accounts of the massacre come from these survivors. The news of the massacre of such a large force coming so soon after the fall of the Alamo sent shockwaves throughout Texas. These two events combined to show the Texians just how deadly serious the conflict was. But while the defeat at the Alamo produced panic, Goliad produced a different effect. According to historian William Brandle's book, Goliad, the Other Alamo, it served to galvanize the Texan war effort. The outcome of the Alamo was to be expected. The men who fought there knew that it was to the death, 
with no chance of victory without outside help, but a sacrifice that they willingly made. The massacre at Goliad, after an honorable surrender, told them that Santa Anna would settle for nothing but blood and that there would be no negotiated peace without victory. Three weeks after the massacre at Goliad, General Sam Houston's small army caught Santa Anna literally napping, attacking his army while it was resting and encamped in a bayou near what is now Houston, winning the Battle of San Jacinto. As Sam Houston's men charged towards the Mexican camp, their famous battle cry was, Remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. And in one of the most shocking victories in history, they captured Santa Ana and won independence for Texas. After the revolution, Mexican troops left Goliad and it remained an important town in South Texas, but gradually shifted its character from a Tejano one to an Anglo one. The Presidio was closed, and it and the mission fell into ruin, but the town became the county seat of Goliad County, was an important hub in the Oxcart network. Oxcarts! <laughs> and was home to a few early women's schools and colleges as Texas became a state. Goliad was a center of tensions between Tejano and Anglos in the years leading up to the Civil War, and after the war was plagued by similar outlawism and violence as its neighboring counties, Carnes County and DeWitt. The town reached its height of prosperity in the 1890s, but in 1902, a massive tornado ripped through the town and killed over 100 people. The decline of South Texas' cotton and cattle industry saw the town diminish over the years, but it remains a viable community. In the 1930s, the Texas Centennial drew attention to the sad state of Goliad's historic sites, and both the Mission and Presidio were rebuilt, and monuments to Fannin and his men were constructed. Today, the Presidio of La Bahia is one of the state's most important shrines to Texas independence, and looks much the way it did on Palm Sunday in 1836. So I think this would be a good time for us to share our thoughts on Goliad. Right, and I've always wanted to go to the Presidio. I know you said it's way out in the middle of South Texas, and there's nothing really there, but I've been to the Alamo and I've been to San Jacinto and I think Goliad is really, it's kind of the Holy Trinity of Texas revolution, Texas independence, but it has such a rich and long history beyond just that Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, the, the Gutierrez McGee expedition and long and, and the Spaniards uh, and back to the 1700s. And I think it's got such a rich history and it really encapsulates most like the thread of of history from Spain to Texas, uh, and and that's that's really what I I would like to be a, to be a part of that and to have that experience to see that. Yeah, and it just you know like we said in there it it just really drives home the the bloodthirstiness of Santa Anna and his decree that there would be no prisoners and they realized you know that's this is this is for real we've got to really fight this now right when they captured santa Ana, i mean they there was serious debate and conflict in the texas government over whether they should execute him and try him as a war criminal because it was in 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 our modern terms it was a war crime i mean they surrendered honorably and he had them executed an interesting thing to me about coliad is that it's part of this network of these texas cities that are not as important today as they were at the time. Like Indianola and like Helena and things like yeah, that. Indian- Gonzales. Gonzales, right. Indianola, Helena, Gonzales. All these were these places, these stops between the coast and San Antonio. And today they're just small towns. They're, they're small towns. They're small communities. Goliad is very well aware of its historic roots, as is Gonzales. And there's lots of historical pieces to see there about the Texas Revolution. They, they have, again, that, that small Texas town feel. All of these places we talk about in this Texas Revolution are interesting to me because they're all a stone's throw from my mom's house in Kennedy and my dad's house in Polk. Like, you're, you drive down there from Dallas. You drive, 
you see the sign, you know, turn here to go to Goliad, turn here to go to Gonzales, you know, Cuero is this way. And you, you realize it's like, okay, it's not that far from one point to the other as you kind of work your way down the coast. Another thing that's interesting, I think, is we, we talked earlier, we talked about the Alamo in a previous episode, uh, John Wayne's The Alamo, and the legend of the Alamo. And, and there's not as much of a legend with Goliad because it's such a sad occurrence. It's yeah. such a sad incident. And, you know, I talked about that Fanon's kind of an enigma. Uh, he's, he is, he's, he's the reluctant martyr, you know, but he was a very capable person. He was very brave and uh, personally and very honorable. Um, but he, he has the stigma that he, he couldn't get to the Alamo and then that he got, he went, you know, tried to leave Goliad and got caught in a prairie and, and didn't leave. Um, if he'd stayed at Goliad, it would have been another Alamo, but they would have taken a lot more with them because Goliad was a very powerful fortress. I mean, it was much more modern and well-equipped and well-supplied than the Alamo was. And he had, you know, what, at least twice as many men there. So it would have been another Alamo, but I think Fanning kind of gets a bad rap as well for, for what happened. He, he thought he was doing the right thing and, you know, it's kind of here or there with that. Makes me sad. Yeah, it's a very sad story. But there's also such a rich history, and it is it is so important to our history that we, we talk about this, and we remember as we're coming upon the anniversary, and this week that the show airs, it is the anniversary of that Palm Sunday uh, when the Goliad Massacre occurred. Yeah, and it just thinking about the, the battle cry, you know, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, and, you know, I remember learning that in Texas history, but when you hear other people from outside of Texas echo that, they always stop at remember, remember the, the Alamo. Alamo. Right. So it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's like the secret history, but it, it's one of those things that we as Texans that grew up here and taking our Texas history class, we remember, we remember Goliad, other people just remember the Alamo. It's been an interesting couple of weeks talking about the Alamo, talking about Goliad, talking about a lot of these early heroes of the Texas Revolution because, you know, I I moved around enough as a kid that I saw a lot. I lived in several different districts, but all of the schools that I went to, they were all named for these guys. There was a Bowie, a Crockett, a Travis. There was a Fannin Elementary. There was a Bonham Elementary. There was a Long Elementary. You know, uh, I think there was there was a Milam Elementary. You know, these guys are we we named tons of schools after them and, and towns and counties and towns and counties. Yeah, <laughs> and knives. So there is a remembrance of these people and their names that most Texans are familiar with in their community. But I like it's it's an interesting point you made about Fannin that, you know, he's fairly ill remembered in some aspects of he was a Texas revolutionary, but they make him seem like almost a Mr. Magoo character, sort of stumbling, bumbling, and just being an ineffective leader. But you're dealing with a ragtag band of people. They're not the most disciplined. Everybody, and and you're put in these very impossible situations that are, are hard to see your way out yeah, of. Well, and it, I recall the line from uh, John Wayne's Alamo from uh, Sam Houston when he comes to, you know, passing through San Antonio and goes to visit Travis, and he's like, I'm the commander-in-chief of the Texan army, but I don't have an army. I've got a bunch of guys that I have to turn into an army. And that's kind of the whole story of the Texas Revolution is like, here's a bunch of guys, a bunch of volunteers from elsewhere, all coming to fight for independence, and they've basically got a clock running, which that clock is however long it takes Santa Ana to get from Mexico to Sam Houston. You know, it's like he's got that much time to pull these guys together and turn them into an effective fighting force. And even Sam, uh, his his actual army rank was never above a lieutenant. 
in, when he was in the army, he, he was governor of Tennessee, but you know, they, they gave this commission of a colonelship and, and kind of second in command of the army to a guy who flunked out of West Point and he never yeah. served in the military since, but it was like, he was the best resource that was available because it was better than a lot of people that didn't have any experience. We, we criticize Fannin because they say, well, he only got six miles. But, you know, if I turned you loose in like an open Texas field with no roads and I said, I need you to move this cannon <laughs> six miles that way with a horse, you would be... Or, or these oxen. Or, or these ox. You'd be, you, you'd be lost. You'd be like, I don't know why. Okay. So there's the logistic part that I and think is hard in modern times. across a river. Yeah, yeah. now you got to cross a river. When you visit the Alamo today... They have a big plaque on the wall that talks about these are the volunteers and the people that died here. And, you know, a lot of the ones they have, there's people, from, they show where they're from. They're from Tennessee. And there's people from all over, you know, all well, they over. have the flags of all the states and countries where these people are from, yeah, too. Exactly. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. Of It's not just a ragtag band of people we have turned as soldiers. These are people who, you know, most of them weren't born here. They came here. And they volunteered, and they fought, and they died in these battles, you know. And they really said, you know, I'm going to stand for something. And it's, it's interesting in today's times because it's very easy to wrap yourself in the flag of patriotism and and wave that banner. But when you kind of say, you know, pick up everything you know, all that you have, put it in a cart behind an ox, and take, you know, two months to get to Texas. And then this dictator shows up and is ready to kick you off the land. And then people say, you know, people really made a sacrifice. And it's one of those things about the Texas story that I think resonates so greatly, not just with Texans, but with those who study it outside of Texas. And it's why we so deeply um, admire these men and we, you know, uh, admire them for their sacrifice. And we, and their, and, and when we see something like this where, these volunteers were, you know, just literally just shot in the back, cut down and, and, and dealt a raw deal by Santa Ana. It just serves to cement even further in my mind, you know, what a, what a horrible villain he is. And we've not even covered in this series any of, you know, his atrocities in Mexico that were going on when he was in charge of that. Well, and to your point, you know, Fannin wrote... You know, before before Urea got there, uh, when he was trying to organize this expedition to Mexico, he wrote in like January, early January, to the the provisional government that only about ten percent of his men had lived in Texas before the revolution. Almost all of the men that were there had come in from the United States because they heard a fight was going on, yeah. and they heard that Texas was rising up against Mexico, and they came in from Alabama and from. Mississippi Tennessee. and Tennessee, and like Davy Crockett did, they came to Texas to be part of this. With and the they didn't get a reward. They didn't they didn't benefit from it, but they came because they saw the struggle going on and they wanted to be part of it. Most of the Texans had gone, like Creed Taylor, had gone home at the end of December. They went home. They were done because they thought the war was over. Um, but these men who died, you know, they sacrificed themselves for something that they would, a reward they would never see, and like many of the men in the Alamo, a reward they would never see, but they, they saw that cause, and it was worth it to them, and it was, it was valuable to them. And that's really the legacy of this event in Texas, and it did, like we said, it galvanized 
the rest of the state as they were retreating from Santa Ana and the runaway scrape. It galvanized them to say, we are going to have to make a stand somewhere. And we're going to have to resolve this because Santa Ana will be satisfied with nothing but blood. On that note, I'd say, remember the Alamo. Remember Goliath. That about wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>